We're going to strip you down emotionally. Okay, good. And, uh, you know, and that's what I thought was going to happen. And I yeah. almost didn't do it. Yeah, like, this guy's setting me up. I'm going to end up in rehab. Oh, yeah. And as a little kid, my favorite thing in the world to eat were those little pickled sausages that came in a little jar. But we couldn't afford them. So I would ask my mother if I could just go look at them. What do you say to yourself when that happens? The following people can kiss my <laughs> rich fat you know, One of the things I love about Fill in the Blanks is I've had the opportunity to sit down with some of my really good friends like Ron White and give you a chance to get to know them the way I do. Everything is uncensored. There's no time clock. You just get to sit down and be a fly on the wall while two good friends just talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And let me tell you, when you turn off the filter on Ron White, there's no telling what you're going to get. This is one of the most down-to-earth, real, authentic guys you'll ever meet in your life. Is he funny? Of course he is. The guy's hilarious. He's hilarious on the golf course. He's hilarious at the grocery store. He's hilarious sitting in my den, all of which we've done. We've been around the world together. We've been on the bottom of the ocean scuba diving together. We've done it all. But what you're going to hear is the other side of Ron White because this guy is a really caring guy with a big heart. The old saying, he'd give you the shirt off his back, fits Ron White like a glove. He's a gentle guy, gentle spirit, great father, and a really good friend of mine. So lean back and listen to Ron White. You're going to laugh. You might even get a tear in your eye. So let's stop talking about him and start talking to him. That's all going to start in about 40 seconds. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Here's my goal. I want people to actually get to know you because they know you through your comedy, but they don't know you the way I know you. Okay. <laughs> All right. What are we going to do, Doc? How are we going to let them know? We're going to strip you down emotionally. Okay, good. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what I thought was going to happen. And I yeah. almost didn't do it. Yeah, like, this guy's setting me up. I'm going to end up in rehab. Yeah, that's right. This is an intervention, Ron. Okay. That makes sense. At that makes so sense. many different levels. <laughs> You have no idea. No, people know you, but there's a lot of stuff they don't know about you that I think they should know. So I just want to give them a little background. Do people know you're from Fritch? I, quite frankly, I don't know what they know, Doc, but I am from a very, very small, dusty town uh, north of Amarillo called Fritch, Texas. Fritch is north of Amarillo? Uh-huh. Up in the now, see, I never knew that. I thought Fritch was in South Texas. No, no, no. North of, All this uh, time I've known you, I didn't know it was north of Amarillo. Yeah, yeah. 60 miles north, northeast of uh, Amarillo. It's basically Oklahoma. You know, it, it gets cold up the there. People from Texas don't like the people from Oklahoma, which is weird because there's nothing but a river. Exactly. That separates them. They're the exact same people. But, well, 60 yeah. miles north of Amarillo is Oklahoma, yeah, isn't no, it? Yeah, it almost is. Pampa's up there. Borger is the town I was born in. I'm a small, small but town But then don't guy. you get to Hobart? Isn't that Oklahoma? In the Panhandle? You're right below the Panhandle, right? They're right in the Panhandle, right in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Wow. So how many people are there now that you're gone? Well, they 
You know, I always thought the number was around 700 because it was just a grain elevator and a, a street light. And there was a, a, a Quonset Hut grocery store called Paige's Grocery Store where my mother worked. And as a very, very small child, I would sit at her feet and, and uh, my mother was really, really, really pretty. Uh, it's, and uh, she was the cashier and the only, usually the only person there. And I would sit at her feet while she checked out people at the grocery store. And as a little kid, my favorite thing in the world to eat were those little pickled sausages that came in a little jar. Oh, yeah. But we couldn't afford them. So I would ask my mother if I could just go look at them. <laughs> and she would go, okay, you can just go look at them, but you're not going to get any till Christmas. I'm like, okay. And I would literally, as a, that's one of my earliest memories is going over to the aisle where those sausages were and just, <laughs> just taking a look. Just taking a look. I'm not asking for it. I'm just saying there it is. And I knew that I would get a little jar of them, you know, at, uh, at Christmas. Of pickled sausages. Pickled sausages. So how long would you go stare at these? As long as, it, you know, there was nothing else to do. So once you quit staring at the sausages, uh, you, you were out of things to do in Fritch, Texas. That's a pretty slow town, Ron, a if little... you're staring at sausages in the Quonset Hut market. Let me tell you what happened. It, 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 they, they, they dug a, a dam to lake called uh, Lake Meredith. And, uh, and so Fritch was going to become a boom town. So Piggly Wiggly, with their fancy electric doors, comes into town and runs Paige's grocery store and my mother. Out of business. Out of business. The dam won't hold water. Piggly Wiggly leaves, and we got no food. <laughs> there's no food. Well, that's it. There's no food. There's no water. There's rattlesnakes and stickers and gulches. and So Piggly Wiggly wiggled. Wiggled, and, and, we, <laughs> and Paige's was gone. Oh, and, uh, man. So my dad worked at a refinery, a uh, Phillips Petroleum refinery uh, in Sanford. Uh, in Fritch, Sanford was kind of a joint combination Yeah, thing. Phillips was based in Bartlesville. Bartlesville, Oklahoma, but there's also yeah. Phillips, Texas, right. which is where the refinery was. And that was about uh, just outside of Borger, about 15 miles from where we lived. So how long were you in Fritch before you got out? I, as soon as I was old enough to get some shoes, I walked out <laughs> on my own about six, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my family, uh, my dad's family lived in Borger or in Phillips, Texas, right? Literally their address was one front street. So that was the closest house to the refinery. And they were so much fun that I couldn't believe it. If we were going to over to my cousin's house, uh, uh, aunt Lena and, and uncle Josh, and uh, I had, and then I had a cousin exactly my age, one, a little older, one, a little younger, and they were just fun. They would have, when we were all kids, they had uh, built these little trails and they had all kinds of different sized tricycles for us to ride. So we always had things to do and that turned into bicycles, which turned into motorcycles, which turned into yeah. uh, these things called uh, river buggies that my uncle, who was a mechanic, would build. And then you go down the Canadian River in these things and and he would just scare you to death. Oh, yeah. And it was just enormous amounts of fun and the food was always great and uh, always, you know, barbecued chicken out on the grill and uh, Where'd you go to high school? I went to high school in uh, Deer Park, Texas, but I think the important thing is where did I go to junior high? Same place. Now, the, the mascot for the Deer Park high school team were the Deer Park Deer. Scary. Clever. The junior high team were the Fawn. The Deer Park Fawn. So I was part of the Fighting Fawn, a wobbly leg, 
barely moving creature. And the other teams just had so much fun. They would have these big banners that said, Beat Bambi. Like, how hard is that to do? And, and because our self-esteem was so low because of our name and mascot, it was easy to beat us. You know, we didn't even want well, to fight. Well, didn't really it's, strike fear in anybody's anybody, heart, right? You know, the fawns are coming right, to town. The, the, we were scared of the owls. And <laughs> That's terrible. I know. It was horrible. I mean, who came up with that? You know, I guess they did. You know, I guess the deer and then their junior team is going to have to be the fawn. I'm like, call us anything else, you know? Yeah. Well, Even the, the horn beavers, anything was yeah. At least they had horns on them. So you got out and went into the navy, right? I did. How long were you in the navy? Uh, you know, we shouldn't even bring up these kind of numbers because <laughs> they don't really add up to much. I was, I was, I was not very good at being in the navy because I just had this mouth that was not conducive no. to to being in the service. No, and, and a. And I also had a, a, a little bit of a penchant towards uh, my own habits that I had when I was young. I was pretty rowdy. Yeah. And uh, so I was in for about 18 months and three days, and I was discharged uh, from the Naval Drug Rehabilitation Center in Miramar, California, with an honorable discharge under medical conditions. Uh, honorable discharge. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've tried to make up with that for how bad a, a sailor I was, you know, trying to do service since then. Did but you I, ever get on the water? Yeah, I was stationed at Pearl Harbor. Oh, so uh, you actually got on a boat. Yeah, I was on the USS Conserver, uh, which was a uh, salvage ship. And I found out not very long ago, because the people from the Conserver figured out who I was, and then they came out to some shows, and like the three or four guys in uh, in Vegas, and they told me that they had to spend $100,000 on the Conserver to sink it, that it couldn't get far enough away from the pier on its own power. <laughs> Uh, so they had to spend some money on it to get it out there and sink it. Well, to have not been very big on the service, you sure spent a lot of time taking care of people in the service. I know I'm jumping ahead, but you've been given the Patriot Award. You've spent time helping the guys in the service. You've given back to them. You've spent a lot of time taking care of people that are serving their country. Well, once you go to uh, Walter Reed, uh, your perspective changes. It does change, does it not? Yeah. So I was talking to a guy who was holding his two-year-old daughter and the only limb he had left, and uh, I went outside and cried like a baby. And I thought, well, there's got to be, now I'm you know, invested, there's got to be more I can do. I, I've got to be able to use this platform that I have to at least do something good. you know. So yeah. I was always focused on uh, uh, PTSD because I've had some very, very close friends that have their kids just completely off themselves and i've also seen people i've also seen the awareness of what's available for help help yeah so yeah, yeah that's always been a big part of my push yeah but you've done a lot with wounded warriors and those guys that have just had it tough so you might not have liked it when you were there but you sure have made up for it since that's for sure yeah i'm better at that <laughs> i'm better at this part than i was at that part yeah yeah no kidding so Everybody always wants to know when somebody is at the absolute top of their profession, all humility aside, you have to admit you are on the short list of the best comedians on the globe. When did you decide that's what you wanted to do? In 1986, they built a comedy club between where I lived and where I worked called the Funny Bone Comedy Club in Arlington, Texas. And I was a, I was a, um, a window salesman. I sold windows and doors. And a guy that I worked with, a guy named Sam Bartholomew, 
went to the first open mic night and he came to work the next day and said, Ron, you're funnier than these guys and you should go do this. And so I wrote four minutes of rip snorting comedy and, uh, had to audition and, uh, in with nobody, with the manager of the club and a couple of wait staff that were there that early. And I remember I got a laugh because one of my big jokes was, uh, my wife said, these pants make me look big. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure it's that fat. Which has been hacked a million times, but it was a really original piece of comedy 32 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I just remember one of the waitresses who was just walking by just laughed out loud. And I'm like, boom, there's a laugh right there. I got a laugh. So even then, I only did it because I thought it would be fun. I never thought, you know, it w when you're from Fritch, Texas, or even Deer Park, Texas, they don't really talk a lot about the arts on career day. Yeah. <laughs> They really don't. They, they, from where I was sitting and from my dad's uh, point of view, the best thing I could possibly end up being is a left-handed Heliarch pipe welder. Right. Well, I was already right-handed, so that cuts my pay in half because, yeah. you know, those guys work in teams. Right. So the right-handed guy does one side, but it's like a left-handed boxer or pitcher, not very many of them. So if you're a left-handed Heliarch pipe welder, especially if you can do it underwater, you can make a pretty good living. Right. And uh, so that was, you know, I'm like, well, if I can get over this right-handedness and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, so <laughs> hold my breath. <laughs> hold my breath for a long time. I got quite a future. Yeah. And, uh and my dad and my dad always said, you know, the best money is in construction. And, and even in Houston back then, I'd look at those skyscrapers. I go, well, what do those guys do? Yeah, <laughs> somebody else got to be doing something besides uh, welding. Yeah. And uh, so I was a pipe fitters helper for a while, and uh, uh, and I was pretty good at that. And but I never really became them. So when was the first time you got paid for doing comedy? Did you get paid for mm -hmm. that in '86? I don't think it was 86 because that would have been September 17th, 86. So I'm just over 32 years into it now. Yeah. Uh, so it probably would have been around February or March of the next year. I got paid to do this place called Corky's in uh, Colleen, Texas, which is where uh, Fort Fort Hood is. Oh, yeah. So Corky's was uh, uh, it, it, it Really, one of the funniest things I ever said, I said then, because I was setting up a joke, and I mentioned that there were 40,000 men stationed at Fort Hood, which there is, and this really well-dressed, drunk lady hollered out, every one of them is a bad f <laughs> And I said, boy, you know, it seems like after about 39,000 times, you start to go, maybe it's me. <laughs> maybe, maybe I need to read a book, you know? And uh, So I think I made... Forty dollars or something for that uh, couple of days, or maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was eighty dollars for the. Maybe it was forty a night. I don't really remember. But, yeah, but it was still. I was, you know, I was getting paid for doing something that I considered to be just fun. But you had another job. I still, I still selling doors and windows. What'd you make selling doors and windows? This is like eighty seven. Right? Yeah, eighty seven. I mean, I would, I would probably make five hundred to six hundred dollars uh, a week. So that eighty meant something to me. What I would do, and this is brilliant, and I know you'll agree, is I would invent stage time. So I would go to a restaurant and say, you guys should have a comedy competition here, and first prize is dinner for two. Then I would only tell comics that I knew I was funnier than because I needed that dinner for two. Yeah, so I, I wanted to win, so I wouldn't invite anybody that was any good. It would all be really crummy comics and me, who was a little less crummier than those guys are, just to get a, just to get a meal. But I kind of understood early on that the key to stage time was being a good host. It really didn't matter how funny you are because the other two guys are going to take care of that. 
and I could be as funny as I w could be, but they really liked it if you were slick and made it look like show business. If you memorized the announcements, if you knew everybody's name, if you knew what was coming up and you didn't have to think that what you were saying as a comic was all that important. But if you made it look like it was a, you know, show business, like a professional, like show. A professional show, then they had a tendency to rehire you for that reason. So what I concentrated on early was just being a really good host for those other two guys, uh, as well as doing my little 10 minutes or 15 yeah. minutes or whatever I was up to at the time. So there were four clubs in Dallas at the time. There was a funny bone in Arlington, which is where I started. There was one in Fort Worth. Uh, and then there was an imp two improvs in Dallas. So early, early on, I was working every week, uh, six nights a week, nine shows as an opening act. So I had a pretty unlimited amount of stage time. And then open mic night I would do on the other night. Yeah. So how much money were you making then? So you're doing six nights a week. Yeah, $200 extra a week. 200 a week yeah. for doing nine shows? Yeah, it's not a windfall. <laughs> it's not a windfall, but the, but the thing is, I loved it. IRS wasn't following you around. They really weren't, and they, they, they should have been. And that, So as that moved on and I started making a little bit of money, uh, you know, it, it, I, I started featuring in clubs. I actually did this thing opening for Sam Kennison. Do you know this story? Well, I don't know. I know Sam Kennison, but tell me the story because I might know it. Everybody else doesn't know it. Right. Well, Kennison was coming to town to play the Dallas County Convention Theater, which is a 2,000-seater. Carl LeBove was his regular opening act, who was a, also a very good comedian, and but he was always in rehab, or his wife was, and they had come to town to do a makeup show. So they'd already canceled it once, and uh, but LeBove was in rehab or wherever he was. So the night of the show... They called and said, they called the improv and said, hey, we need somebody to open the show. And they go, well, this Ron White guy's pretty funny. And they're like, fine. It doesn't really matter who. You know, we just need somebody to fill some time. They'll probably boo him off stage anyway until Sam gets out there. So I go down there and it's me and Alex Ramundo, who you know, and, right. and, uh, and Lori, my uh, first wife, uh, my son's mom. Uh, we're back there and we have a little six pack of beer in a little styrofoam ice chest and uh bill kennison sam's brother was his road manager at the time sam's not there uh so backstage at a comedy club there's nobody there right it's not like a band you know there's nobody in the show and so bill comes and explains to me that a lot of times sam's opening act is a sacrificial lamb so right you're gonna go out there they just want to see him he's at the peak of his career they're gonna start screaming at you and it's but just do your time just do we need you to do 15 minutes and i think i had 13 i'm like well i could stretch it into 15 or something that'll be fine and well i go out there well i've never played in front of more than 300 people ever so this is 2000 people and uh i do the first punchline and kaboom it works and i just feel the big wave of laughter over me and i'm like oh this is fun do the second punchline kaboom Boom. Never had a set like it before at that point and was just killing. And I looked over and it was kind of like, you remember the Buddy Holly story when yeah. they were playing the Apollo and that guy couldn't believe that they weren't eating it. And he kept looking around the corner going, what the hell? This guy's doing fine. So I really had an unbelievably good set. 
and uh, but I ran out of material, and Sam still wasn't there, and Bill was going, whatever, dude, come on. <laughs> I got nothing, you know. You, you can't run out of material. You, you can't go up there and wing it as a young comic. So I came off. Well, Sam's still not there. So I'm back in the, you know, back in my dressing room, uh, smoking a joint, drinking a beer, celebrating my good fortune, you know, that I got to have such a good set. And, and, uh, 20 minutes go by, Sam's still not there. 2000 people out there waiting on him. And, uh, I don't even know if I can tell this whole story, but I will. Um, so when Sam shows up now, there's 20 people backstage cause limos pull up, you know, Sam's living the high life, you know, yeah, right. He would party until the money ran out and then he'd come out and make some more money and then party like crazy. And uh, so he shows up. Well, even though there's 2,000 people waiting on him, he first sends his bodyguard to come get me. And uh, Sam was always a comics comic. He always treated comics really, really well. And not anybody else, really. But other comics, he was always empathetic towards them and a good guy. And so Sam had a dressing suite. So there's about 15 people in the first room. They got lobster trays and all kinds of stuff, and uh, they're all eating that stuff. And he was at, back in the back part of that dressing suite in the other room. It was just him and what I can only assume, assume was a hooker because she looked like a hooker, and uh, she was a hooker. And uh, and Sam was doing cocaine, so he had a big vial of cocaine. He's banging it on the table. He's got a rock of it stuck. I mean, he's just working on it, trying to get it out of there. Sam had a bit of a drug problem. And he, he looked at me, and he goes, I heard you killed him, cowboy. And I said, yeah, Sam is a great, it's a great crowd. You're going to love him. And he's banging on the little, he finally gets the rock out of the cocaine thing. And he looks at me and he goes, how about a cup of coffee? And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll do a bump with Sam Kennison, whatever. So he makes these rails, little bitty one for me, big one for him. Then he fakes a heart attack, falls on the floor, starts convulsing. Nobody buys it but me because they've all been around him, you know. And uh, so I'm about to start sucking face with this guy trying to bring my comedy hero back to life. And then he just jumps up off the ground. He's kind of like Belushi in that he was overweight, but he very, very nimble. You know, he, he could do a, a hand flip and stuff. And and then he goes, uh, I'll show you how to do this. And he goes out and just annihilates this crowd. And afterwards, there were people that owned the Funny Bone Chain, which was 21 clubs at the time. The Punchline right. owned six clubs. They were there. Laugh Stop had four or five. So they had gotten together and said, well, we can offer, we can put you on the road as a middle act, making 500 bucks a week. But what they said was, when I got out there, they go, I had these, the, the devils on uh, devil angel thing going in one shoulder. They're going, Ron, let's go have dinner and talk about your career. On the other shoulder is Kennison going, how about we just take the limousines out to some titty bars? <laughs> I'm like, why don't I see you guys later this week? <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to go run with Kenneth in the night. And uh, so, you know, really, really memorable, fun night with uh, one of my comedy heroes. And th and then I worked with him again right before he died. And I was a headliner in a comedy club, and he was coming in to do some warm-up sets. And he didn't remember me, and uh, which is, you know, probable anyway. And and uh, But he looked really bad. And I was supposed to do 10 minutes, and he was supposed to do the rest of it. Well, I did an hour and 10 minutes, and he still wasn't there. And, uh, so when he showed up really wasted cookie crumbs, all or whatever it was all over his shirt, wearing sunglasses, horrible set. And he was doing two that night and we were already a whole set behind. 
and he was getting ready for a big show. He just hadn't been doing any sets. He didn't have any chops at all. And uh, and, he, and he died like a month month or so or two months. I don't remember exactly, but uh, right after that. He was an amazing talent, though, wasn't he? Crazy, crazy talent. I mean, when he was on, he was just he is was it, on. As good as it gets. He reminds me a lot of John Daly, who I play yeah. a little golf with these days. Just yeah. how much unbelievable raw talent that guy has. And, uh, you know, just uh, just instilled to this day, John's a great guy, but, boy, he's a party machine. Kennison would just get crowds so jacked. They would be wild. Well, I, you know, I look at comics, at comedy, all comics in two categories. Uh, bridge builders. And then people that walk across those bridges. So the bridge builders are very rare. And what the reason Sam, I considered him a builder, was because he taught us that a crowd can genuinely not like you. And you can still make them laugh. Uh, instead of, who was the guy that uh, always made fun of everybody? And I just can't remember his name. But anyway, his was all pretend meanness. Sam's was genuine meanness. Yeah. And but he could still kill the crowd with it. So yeah. even though they found him genuinely disgusting, you know, you, you you could be honest. You could be that honest and still and still uh make a crowd laugh hard. So did you go on the road for five hundred a week? Yeah. You got back with those guys and you did yeah, it yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got my uh I got all my dates. They could work me forty eight weeks a year between them. And, uh, so I went out on the road, uh, you know, mostly with Alex Ramundo, uh, right. cause he was the opening act and we would either get in my Nissan truck, which had a bench vinyl seat that would bend you over the steering wheel after about 50 miles. And we would drive 800 miles okay. uh, and I would make, he would make 50 bucks a night and I was making like a hundred a night. And, uh, and then we would do one nighters and then on the weekend you'd do a, uh, a bigger, a little bit bigger place and still, yeah. still make that little bit of money. But at some point you gave it up and went to Mexico though, started making pottery. Was that before or after this? After, by the time that got there, I was a headliner in comedy clubs and at about three years into it, I was headlining comedy clubs. And, I, and then I would make between $1,200 and $1,000, $1,200 a week. So, uh, you know, then I kind of moved up to headliner and, uh, making a little more money, like 15 or $1,800 a week, which is more than most of my friends were making. And, uh, then the funny bone chain figured out that I didn't have, I was, all my eggs were in their basket. And so they decided to cut my pay by a third, to, uh, take away my airfare and, uh, and I remember distinctly telling them to go eat a steaming bowl of f which was so much fun to say, but right. I still lost all that work. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I had a girlfriend that was making pottery and I decided to move to Mexico and, and, uh, and start making pottery and may start making pottery. So, uh, so it, my, my product was heavy and fragile. So yeah, that's a bad combination. A horrible combination. Doc was horrible. It was horrible. So we would, uh, you know, so every you time we would ship it out, it would, it would show up in pieces. And, uh, but the, uh, the company called Valvero Pottery in Reynosa, Mexico is still open today. Really? So I did that until Blue Collar. And, uh, when Blue Collar started, uh, this blows by a lot of time, but, but when Blue Collar started, 
for me to be a part of that, I had to move out of Mexico because nobody could find me, nobody could call me, and uh, they needed me to be available. But how did they find you to do Blue Collar? Well, because I, I, I was still working with Jeff. Uh, on the weekends, I would fly to, uh, oh, okay. I would drive across to uh, from Reynosa to McAllen, catch a plane to Houston, catch a plane to uh, Atlanta, take the train to Peachtree to Cab, get on Jeff's jet, go do a Friday somewhere, a Saturday somewhere, and then come back to Mexico. So the first time I ever heard about Blue Collar, we were on our way back from this gig, the Kings of Comedy was doing amazing numbers right. uh, with with Hughley and Bernie Mac and Steve Harvey and uh, who else. But they were doing gigantic numbers. They were doing right. basketball arenas and stuff. So Yeah, they were Georgia Dome. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, Jeff said, uh, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to combine Bill Ingvall's tour, which was a guy named Craig Hawksley, uh, was opening for for Bill and I was opening for Jeff. We're going to put those two things together and make this big tour. And my comment was, you don't need four comics. I didn't know what the Kings of Comedy were doing. You know, you don't need four comics to do a show. And he's like, well, Ron, if you just listen. And so he kind of explained it to me and he goes, if you play your cards right, you can be part of this. And I remember I said, why don't I just give you my cards? You play them <laughs> and, uh, and let me be part of it. You know? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's when things really started to uh, change. We were, you know, we went from, you know, me working in a comedy club to doing eight to 10,000 all the way up to 20,000 people a night. And, uh, because that was you and Jeff and Bill and then, and Craig Hawksley, but it changed to Larry, the cable guy because Craig Hawksley, he was really good, but he was on some kind of medication that wouldn't let him shut up. And he would, (laughs) be just in Jeff's ear talking about, well, I paid for this cab and nobody's giving me the money back. And Jeff's like, I'm trying to pee, dude. And I'm like, you just can't do that to him. You got to give the guy some space. Now he's the biggest comic in the world at the time. You know, Jeff sold more comedy albums than Cosby and Pryor combined. Um, Nobody can uh, touch it, nor will they ever probably, because there's so many options for comedy now. And uh, so they knew uh, Larry the Cable Guy from Atlanta spring training baseball down in Florida where he lived. And right. uh, so him and Vic Henley and uh, and Larry the Cable Guy knew each other from there. So he brought they, they brought in uh, Dan Whitney, of course, is his name. And that was a great call because that really gave kind of a counterbalance to me and, 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 and great substance t- uh, to the show. The, the fans just absolutely ate it alive. I know all four of you guys, and everyone is just a superstar talent, and it worked. I mean, right away, immediate success, right? Right. So you go then from getting cut from twelve hundred a week and no airfare to doing this, and then all of a sudden now it's millions. Well, not for me. I was a hired hand, so for Jeff it was millions. Uh, Jeff owned it, uh, Blue Collar One, and uh, but I was making, I think. 1500 a show and we were doing i was making i was probably bringing in five grand a week mm-hmm. which is way more than 1300 flat right so uh and and that was kind of an average now when blue collar came out it sold four million copies right at the time the biggest selling comedy album was behind you might be a redneck 
which was which is right. still the biggest selling comedy album of all time, Jess. Right. And um, now all of a sudden, four million copies of it sell. Forty million people are watching it. It's getting passed around to everybody. It's a phenomenon, a genuine phenomenon. Uh, before the internet was gigantic or any of those things, and literally, I couldn't go into a Walmart without getting mobbed. And so, Blue Collar kind of came to an end. We got back together to do those other two. We didn't tour together that whole time, but we did for three years. And then Warner Brothers said that they were going to turn it into a movie. And I'm like, well, that sounds good, right? That's uh, they they've committed to you know put it in theaters, and and they did. And it didn't do well in theaters, and uh, but it just did so well in DVD. You know, Walmart right. was already set up. They decided they didn't want to go twelve million in debt in advertising before they just went to this Walmart thing and made a bunch of money. Yeah. And so, and, and that worked. They had dolls of us. Uh, I had my own doll, which I didn't think looked like me at all. <laughs> but when I got it. I was actually here in town and I went down to the bar and I was waiting on my manager and I got it out of my bag and the bartender goes, Oh, you have a doll of yourself. And I'm like, well, I guess it does look like me because that guy nailed it. So, um, so then kind of the big thing for me was, uh, I had never gone out on my own in, in big venues. And so I wanted to go play this little 900 seat theater and my manager at the time said, you're not ready. You should go back until you're selling out clubs and then go into that. And I'm like, well, that's only 900 seat. There's 1,700 seats in this club throughout the week, you know. So why don't we try it? He goes, you'll be lucky to sell out one. I sold out nine. And I was making 10000 a pop. So that made that weekend I made $90,000, which is more than I made the last year. And uh, so then we thought, well, let's put another one on sale. Sold out in two minutes. Wow. Uh, the State Theater in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we sold, net, well, now the management. Two minutes. Two minutes. Have two minutes after we put it on sale, you could not buy a ticket on uh, Ticketmaster. And uh, so we sold out a bunch of those. And so then I kind of went from, you know, from making 5000 a week to 350000 a week to half a million. Uh, I think. Th my record back then was like six fifty, uh, selling out big venues twice a night. So this was in a short period of time, though. Once it clicked, once it clicked, that would just happen just like that. Yeah, right. That was an overnight success. Take me through that. What do you say to yourself when that happens? The following people can kiss my <laughs> rich fat. <laughs> How long was the list? It was. It, it wasn't that long, but it was. Uh, it, it, and it wasn't very exclusive, but it was the way I felt. You know, it was fame and fortune. You know, it happened to you. You know, well, you were already doing well before all this, but I, 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 it was all of a sudden I could have, you know, whatever I wanted. It was, it was, and it was, you know, pretty perplexing for me. And, uh, but, you know, I'm like, I want that. That's mine. Those two cars are mine. That plane, <laughs> that's mine. Now, that bus, give me that budget. Put it over there. It's right over there next to the plane. I actually had a, uh, the, my jet, which I still have, and uh, and a black bus, a black limousine, and a and a black thing called a oh, what was it? A Ford, uh, uh, Lincoln Blackwood. It's a pickup truck with a wooden vinyl, it was a wooden trunk area. It was really cool. They didn't make very many of them, and I had them all lined up on the tarmac next to the plane, taking pictures of it. 
I was drinking like a fish, smoking pot like there was no tomorrow. No, that uh, was yesterday, Ron. Right, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, 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 I'm much calmer now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, you know, it was everything that I'd never even really considered. You know, I, I really never sat around thinking that any of this kind of stuff would happen to me. Even though it happened to Jeff when he was standing right next to me, I never sat around thinking about that. I like being a club comic, and I like being Jeff's opening act. And it, I kind of consider myself as Willie Nelson's harmonica player. I would sit there and play harmonica for Foxworthy for the rest of my life yeah. and make a good living and let him do all the work and pay for the jet fuel. Yeah. And Because uh, not once did he go, well, this time you're going to need to put gas in the plane. Okay, so you're sending heavy, fragile pottery out of Mexico to Texas for God knows why. Right. I'm sure that was really big profit to sell pottery pieces up here. And then you're working for $5,000 a week, which is good. That's $20,000 a month, right? Right. So at that point, you think you're doing pretty well, right? I mean, that's a quarter million bucks a year. I, yeah, I, and I, and that's what it was, too. I remember telling Jeff, I said, like, I'm on pace to make a quarter of a million dollars this year, which is more money than I ever dreamed of. Right. And uh, and I think that year I ended up making $14 million. So you're targeting two fifty, and you make $14 million. Were you a gracious winner? No? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, I... I Jeff, whenever he first got a copy of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, he called me and said, come get it. I want you to watch it. And uh, he hands it to me and he goes, this is going to make you rich and famous. And I want you to be nice to everybody. And I said, you, give me the thing. <laughs> give me the thing. I want to see it. Uh, I, you know, I, I, but I, I wouldn't say that I was, I was I was humbled by it. I couldn't believe it. I mean, playing Radio City Music Hall, uh, out, you know, <laughs> instead of the Uncle Funky's Chuckle Hut in Cincinnati, <laughs> yeah, a little different there. And uh, and that's uh, a long way from Fritch. Long way from Fritch, Texas. That's a long Radio way City from Fritch. Hall. Have yeah. New Yorkers, yeah, lined up out there to come in and listen to you. Yeah, in fact, that we uh, the first time I played Radio City, we we held the record for the least amount of money ever spent on a sellout. We spent $1900 to sell it out in New York, which is a poster. Yeah. Uh, that's a poster. Yeah, that's a poster. Honest to God, that's yeah. posters in those glass. That's it. Things out there. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And uh so and I also had the flu so bad I should have canceled the show. And uh, I was sick as a dog. And I'd never even walked in the building before. The first time I ever saw it, you know, that stage, you've been in there. Oh, yeah. That stage sometimes has 130 people on it. It's airfield. And I was so sick. I looked at that microphone. I'm like, I'm going to have to set up a base camp <laughs> yeah. halfway to that microphone just to get over there. And they, they knew I was sick. And they, they, you know, they gave me a standing ovation on the way to the microphone just to make it look like I was walking faster. And, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but it was beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah. I never sat around thinking on that level. Uh, I never would have been brokenhearted if it wouldn't have happened because I didn't expect it to happen. But do you ever now, and along the way, have you taken the time to really sit back and reflect and say, wow, this is my life. I'm doing this. No. 
I'm, I, my tendency is to more think because I can do it, it's not that big a deal. That's more of my opinion. That if I can do it, it's not, it's not worth much. Or it's, I really don't sit around patting myself on the back. Sometimes I do. I mean, I have a billboard on Sunset right now. So, <laughs> have you seen it? I have seen. It. That's pretty fancy. Yeah, that's there's a few people fancy. in this town that wish they had a uh, billboard on Sunset with their picture and their name on it. Yeah, right. Uh, and a Netflix special. Yeah, and so, you know, I always kind of have a tendency to discount my accomplishments. Why? Um, I don't know. You're the doctor. You tell me why. <laughs> why do I discount these things? I. I just, you know, I, I just always, ha I, I was kind of raised with a pretty low opinion of myself, and uh, I was always told I was stupid. Uh, I had attention deficit disorder. I couldn't do regular school work. I didn't graduate from high school. I don't have a formal education. And so I always just, you know, kind of had a fairly low opinion of myself. I bought it. You know, enough people, I was in f slow classes because I couldn't read, write, and, you know, some things. I couldn't do it. Yeah, but uh, you know you're smart. You can't tell me you don't know you're smart. I know I'm. I, yeah, well, I'm not you smart. I'm me smart. <laughs> I'm, there's a whole lot of difference between me and you, uh, and, and and we do have a few things in common. But how smart we are is not one of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, you you do three shows a day that are unscripted, an hour long a piece. You know, I, I write a show every three and a half years <laughs> and able to hawk it for a little bit of money. So. Yeah, right. A little bit of money. Yeah, I got it. You know, Oprah told me one time, she said, your biggest problem is you make it look really easy. People are going to think this is really easy because you make it look really easy. And you have such a easy delivery style. People can look at that and say, you know, he's just kind of stumbled up there. And she, I know that at 38 minutes and 20 seconds, you know you're supposed to be on this beat right now, right here. You have timing. You do callbacks. And you know exactly where you're supposed to be when. And I know you work hard to put that together yeah i do i learned how to do that my uncle was a baptist preacher dr charles pollard is his name uh still alive lives in farmington new mexico uh i go see him every time my plane gets anywhere near farmington and i pop in and see uncle charlie well a couple of summers uh i lived with uncle charlie and uh and i loved going to church uh because he was fun it was the funnest church ever you know he had a great youth group uh, uh, and we, I remember one time we went on this choir tour in a broken down bus and we went all over the place. And, and the story he still loves to tell is I, I was the youngest person in the choir. And, uh, and, and literally I got $3 and 50 cents every meal to spend any way I wanted to. So I ate chili and French fries every meal. Cause I, nobody was telling me what to do. I was on the road as a, as an act, you know? Yeah. But their favorite story I had a line in the in the in the show, and it was, "Brother Fred," and he was the choir director. Whose country is this anyway? This is my country. So that was the whole. That was my whole thing. Well, we're playing a Baptist church in Dallas. We were touring with this group, and um, and I got I was so nervous, and I said, "Brother Fred," and I couldn't remember my line to save my life, and I said. Where we parked the bus? <laughs> this is my country, and they, they and they all still howl about me saying where we parked the bus. I couldn't think of anything else to say, but I didn't know where we parked the bus. And well, you came up with something, I right? Came, I did. I came up with a little That's improv. Right. You there. didn't choke. Yeah, I didn't choke. 
and uh, and everybody knew start that song no matter what ron does right but i, I learned how to I, I like to watch him preach pace rhythm timing i literally sat there and uh learned a craft didn't even know i was learning it just sat there watching my uncle and i still you know like my relatives will tell you that i have his pace rhythm and timing yeah you have a signature style. You have a signature rhythm. You have a signature delivery, right? And you recognize that. Mm -hmm. Nobody else does it the way you do it. Nobody works slower than me. Yeah. And, uh, I'm trying to stretch it out so I don't have to write so much. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I do. I mean, I, I know what I'm good at, and, uh, and, I, and I know what I'm not good at. Uh, you know, I'm not as prolific as some comics are and that I don't put out a special every year. You know, like, you know, Rogan and, you know, these guys that are all my peers uh, seem to put out material quicker. I let it sit on the vine for a while and make sure that what I'm putting out is something I'm really, really proud of. You say that you hold low self-esteem and all, but all of those guys that you're talking about, and I know these guys, I know Foxworthy, I know Ingle, I know Larry the Cable Guy, I know Joe Rogan. They all know we're friends, and every one of them respects you immensely. And you know that, because you know them. You know they respect you. What do you how do you explain that, That's Mr. The low Self-Esteem? of my career is I know that, I, that my peers hold me in esteem. Yes, they do. So... Uh, uh, Chris Rock says the nicest things about me. Yeah, I know Chris. And uh, They all hold you in high esteem. They all know we're friends. They can't figure that out. Well, nobody can figure that out, Doc. I quit yeah. trying to explain it to people. <laughs> yeah. I use you as an example a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, people, seriously, they'll say, well, you know, my husband this or my friend that. And I always say, look, you don't have to love everything about somebody to love them. I said, I don't, I don't drink. I haven't had a drink in 50 years. I said, one of my best friends that I love like a brother drinks like a fish, smokes dope every day, and I love him like a brother. I don't have to love everything he does to love him. I don't have a lot of friends that don't drink either, Doc. And I'm like, <laughs> exactly. But I really like this guy. I really like this guy. Well, I don't think, you know, I don't think people... That people don't know how funny you are, you know, and uh, and how much what a fun hang you are. That's kind of what I get from the relationship, and it's also nice to be around somebody that that does not want a thing from you, you know. So, yeah, well, we do have a good time. We uh, do. Have we, we ever been together? We didn't have a good time. No, never. You're right. All we want is each other's company. We just hang out and have a good time. And you have a great time with Jay. Jay's one of your best friends. Yeah, you know, my is. son Jay. Yeah, he loves you like a brother as well. Right. Who Rogan stole from me, by the way, you know, <laughs> which I really resent that. But Jay and I are really, 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 really good friends. And then he moves up there by Rogan and Rogan and his, Rogan's wife and his wife. Hey, they have kids the same age. And they're know. traveling, sending me pictures together. <laughs> Neither one of them yeah. have on shirts. I'm like, what the hell's going on over here? Yeah, no. It's like he's having an affair with another right. comedian. I, know. I don't like that. I don't yeah. like that. You could have you, you could have picked a singer. You yeah, know? that's right. You got to be a comic, Jay. Yeah, come on. You know he loves you. You guys always find a way to get together somehow, right? Yeah, and we always laugh hysterically and have a, a great time. You know, he and I are both. You know, and as well as you, we're all busy men. 
you yep. know we we all work really 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 hard and uh but when we do get together it's as much fun as i can have yeah we find a way to intersect that's for sure a lot of your comedy comes from your life i guess that's true of every comedian right you talk about experiences i do but it's not a newscast right so what i ultimately say may not be true at all but it stems from something my only goal is to make you laugh as hard as you can physically laugh for as long as i'm on stage that's my goal Uh, it's not that you walk away smarter because you certainly won't uh obviously what i want you to do is walk away with your face hurting yeah and uh so that's my only goal so you know when when i say something on stage it may or may not be true you know but some of the stories that like well as you know the dr phil story which is true probably yeah you were there uh that's probably outside of they call me tater salad the, the second most famous bit that i do and i didn't do it on stage until you came out to see me in vegas I'd quit doing it, and you asked me to do it because you and uh, the other people involved in the uh, incident. The victims. <laughs> yeah, the other victims were there. And so I kind of went back and watched it a couple times. And then I started doing it. I forgot, you know, that album really didn't sell that well. And a lot of times when I have 2,000 people in a room, there will be, you know, 1,200 people that have never heard it. Right. And so I just started closing with it again. And uh, and I'm, I, I know the last show that I did, uh, I, I closed with it again. It's just such a fun story. Yeah. Well, I was there when you did it. I was kind of to the side and nobody knew I was there. And the audience is in the floor. Oh, yeah. That, they, that's a piece they they just love. Including Mary Pat. <laughs> right. Right. We I mean, changed the name to protect the innocent. Yes, we did. So we'll let her be Mary Pat, but she was just dying. If you haven't heard that story, you can find it on YouTube. You can find it everywhere. Right. But that was a great story. Like you're talking about tater salad. And in there, you said, I had the right but not the ability to remain silent. Did that come from your life, or is that something you wrote and made up? Uh, It's something I realized about myself. Yeah. That there are times I could shut up, and I just don't shut up. Uh, I've always been extremely confrontational, uh, and that has not always served me well. You know, there are a lot of situations I could walk away from that I don't, and uh, and it's just something I realized uh, about myself that I, I I could shut up, but I just don't. How many times have you been married now? Oh come on, Doc. <laughs> there, I don't know. If you caught, if you count that tall girl, Jennifer Donna, I don't remember her name, but uh, somebody. There was somebody. Uh, just I've only been married twice actually married i was actually married right i was i was married to uh my son's mother who's still a dear dear friend of mine yeah Uh, i was married to her for 12 years and she had my child and when we got a divorce she got a dryer and um we had a washer and a dryer you got the washer i got the washer she got a dryer and uh and so the next woman i was married to her for three and a half years no kids and she got four and a quarter million in cash and whatever she could steal and uh is she the one that took the gazebo how do you even know about that well i know about it because i was with you when they called you and told you she took the gazebo that's right that's right how do you take a gazebo this thing is set in two feet of concrete she hired a cherry picker (laughs) 
to go over the top of my 12,000 square foot house, yank this thing out of the ground, and then she bought a house right around the corner just to irritate me. And then she had this cherry picker bouncing down the road with his gazebo and just plopped it down in her backyard. And they still talk about it at the River Club all the time. It's the funniest thing anybody had ever seen. <laughs> that she came and just stole this thing out of it. Now, it was illegal uh, as it could be. I got the house, but she stole the gazebo and just planted it in her backyard. Took the foundation with it? Yeah, the, the yeah the concrete. Apparently, this cherry picker was strong enough to yank the concrete out of the ground and just take it over. They dug some holes, plumped it right back down, and she had this the gazebo. And I ended up just calling the company that did that and said, well, just make me another one because I'm not going back to court. We were on the front nine at Bel Air when they called you and told you she took your gazebo. And I don't think I've ever seen you speechless. Right. <laughs> she said, no, I'm rarely she speechless. took my gazebo. My gazebo? What How do you even want take with a gazebo? It? I didn't even realize it was gone at first. It wasn't even a big, I mean, it was a, regular just a four post thing that was custom made there were actually two of them i'm glad she didn't get them both but i just had another one made and and, uh, just like it now is that the divorce where you got the cops called on you at your deposition because you were in i think santa monica and you were talking to her lawyer and they called the cops on you because he felt threatened and this was right after that lawyer was getting shot at by oh, the tree which was so funny in santa monica yeah i laughed so hard uh, well needless to say i didn't like my divorce lawyer or hers i didn't like mine any more or less than i hated hers the really funny thing was this guy's <laughs> he's dead. That's the funny part. Uh, John May was the guy's name. And uh, so I had these, you know, I had the little French bulldogs. I still have one, but I had Gertie with me and Gertie was just a puppy. And uh, so he had the top two floors of this big, huge building, biggest, most powerful divorce lawyer in Georgia. The reason I know that is I tried to hire him and she already had, cause she's way smarter than me. And, uh, so I come in with that dog on a leash, and he's got this big foghorn, leghorn. Why? I never. I can't get that dog. What are you talking about? Oh, you can't have a dog in here. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? Time to a bumper? The person that was supposed to watch him got hung up in traffic, so I got the dog. So there was a balcony there and a matching set of rooms where his office was on the other side. So we couldn't get that door open for whatever reason. And he goes, well, you can put him out on the patio in, in my outside of my office so we're going to his office and and gertie just hunches up and takes a big <laughs> right in his office and I, I walked away from that third like that was not my dog and uh and i just thought it was oh great go get him gertie go get him just take a big old stanchy dump and uh although i know his secretary cleaned it up and i sent her flowers that day for uh for cleaning up my dogs but i still thought it was hilarious and uh I don't know if you know this or not, but when I found out he died, uh, I still had his office number in my phone. And uh, my wife said, or, uh, the woman I was with at the time, said I was a prick for doing this. But as soon as I found out he died, I, I called his office and I said, 
I'd like to speak to John Mayhew, please. And the lady goes, well, I'm very sorry to tell you, but Mr. Mayhew passed away. And I said, oh, okay. And I call her right back and said, I'd like to speak to John Mayhew, please. <laughs> she goes, I just told you, Mr. Mayhew passed away. I said, I know. I just like hearing you say it. <laughs> and my, my wife's like, you're a prick. And I'm like, he's lucky I don't know where he's buried. I'll show you. I'll, I'll show it to you. Well, she took your gazebo, so... She sure did. You got it right, right? I sure did. And those lawyers between them got a million three in the middle of that divorce. So, really? Yeah. A million, a million three, three after tax dollars. Yeah. And you couldn't have settled that? No. Because I remember you telling him in the deposition, you asked him if he saw that video of that lawyer getting shot at and <laughs> right. ducking out behind the tree. Do you remember telling him that? I told him it was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And yeah, and he said, yeah, I saw it. And you said, yeah, I've watched it about 15 times, and it gets funnier every <laughs> time I watch it. I did. That's when he called the cops. Right, he did. He called the cops and said I was violent or whatever. And, you know, that was just a, a ploy to drag it out for another couple hundred thousand dollars and I don't think I threatened him or anything. Well, no. I just thought it was funny. I mean, have you seen it? It's pretty <laughs> funny if you don't like lawyers. Isn't it? So how old's your son now? Uh, Marshall is 28 years old. 28? Yeah. Man, 28. We've been knowing each other a long time. I know. I know. Because you know, he was a very young man. Now, I'll tell you something that a lot, a lot of people know. That I had joint custody of him when he was two and a half years old. So, literally, it's time for me to go on the road, and they're like, here you go. <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, uh, wait a minute. I don't know what to do with this. This is a baby. <laughs> yeah, that's your baby. I'm like, okay, uh, I got a car seat, and I'm, I'm traveling around in a van. I'm like, I'll put you right there. You're going to need food, I guess. And so... I would take him to these comedy clubs and I'd just walk up to a waitress and I go, could you just hold him for about 45 <laughs> minutes and I'll be on stage and, and I it just, uh, it don't give him any beer or anything. He, he likes beer, but don't give it to him. And, and, uh, so that's, you know, that's his early life, you know, was me and him sleeping in that van and, uh, cold. I remember one time it was so cold that I had to put the toothpaste in my armpit <laughs> to get it warm enough to squeeze any toothpaste out of it. We're outside of Omaha, Nebraska, oh, on the no. side of the road. And, uh, and you know, he was a, he was a gamer, you know. He, you know, he never complained about it, you know. He, he just liked to go. And, uh, and I don't know. And then when he was five, I moved to Mexico. So Lori was, like, putting him on a plane. We're going over to the third world country. In a, what what is today it was an extremely dangerous town, but back then it wasn't yeah. quite so bad, and and um, so that and that's where he learned how to speak Spanish, and and uh, you know we lived in a very humble little house, and I had no money at all, and uh, I remember one time I took him to a water park, and I didn't have enough money for me to go, so so I had to go in in full clothes and and just watch him play because I didn't have the other fourteen dollars, right? And uh, I mean broke broke. 
Have I ever told you the tomato story? No. My mother, when she lived in Buda, Texas, the land that she lived on was a peach orchard at one time and then a cattle farm. And she grew the most amazing tomatoes that you could just eat it over a sink like an apple. They were so good. And people waited for them all year. Foxworthy would bug me. Where's your mother's tomatoes? I'm like, they're coming in. They're coming in. You'll get yours. So I'd gone out on the road for a couple of weeks. And, uh, and, I, and every dime I made, I already owed everybody, you know, so I didn't have any money. And uh, so I come back into McAllen. I go to the post office. They bring out a big soggy box. Well, I know mother sent me the tomatoes, and I was out of town, and I know what's in it, and I tell them to throw it away. So now I get in line, I, I go to Mexico, I'm exhausted, been on the road for, you know, uh, you know I had a long, long, long day, and uh, and the phone rings, and not very many people knew that number uh, in Mexico, it was my mother, and she goes, well, did you get your tomatoes? And I go, mother, I've been out on the road, so uh, I, when I got back, the tomatoes were all she goes, well, at least you got the $100. <laughs> I get back in my car, drive back across the U.S. border, go to the post office, crawl in the dumpster, and rummage around in that thing till I found that box, ripped it open, got that $100 out. You found and, it? <laughs> yeah, I found that $100, and I, I needed it, too. I went out to eat, had a couple of drinks. I'm like, yeah, I got it. So, so that's where I was financially. I would crawl into a dumpster. <laughs> I would go to another country, <laughs> crawl into a dumpster. <laughs> to get a right, hundred bucks. To get a hundred bucks, right? Yep. That's a guy that needs a hundred dollars right there. Now, as a psychologist, I got to ask, as a father, did you have the sex talk with your son? I did. Uh, How'd that go? Well, it was, <laughs> it was pretty interesting. Um, you know, uh, I'm guessing this was short. It was, it was pretty short. I, I, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what it was that I said, but, uh, I remember afterwards he goes, well, what about condoms? I'm like, yeah, don't, yeah, use those. And, I mean, <laughs> I left that part out of it. It was like, you know, it, I, but I really don't remember too much about the conversation. What's he doing now? Well, he, he works for my tequila company, right? Uh, uh, some doing tastings and stuff like that around Austin. And then, and uh, your tequila company is, he said, setting up a shameless plug. Number one tequila, the best tequila in the world. Taterstequila.com. I'm sorry. I missed that. Taterstequila.com. And we'll send it straight to your house. So, okay. And the name was number one, J U A N. Okay. I just missed it that first time. So I just yeah, right. to go Thank back over there again. Much, Doc. I appreciate it. At least I'm honest. It's right. a shameless plug, right? Right. How's it taste? Well, you know me. I'm a drinker. I come from uh, 25 years of uh, of scotch. And I... Uh, that smells good. I know. It's crazy delicious. Yeah, I'm not a drinker, but I love the taste of it. I just don't drink. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I got to say, that does taste good. Why don't we just get him a glass and stop putting your fingers in my tequila? Well, if it's good tequila, kill everything. Oh, right? yeah, it does. It keeps me healthy. Yeah, that does taste good. But, you know, the, the, smooth. the thing about tequila is it's a stimulant instead of a depressant. It's the only alcohol that is. All other alcohols are depressants. And so I would drink a lot of scotch, and at, late at night, 
I would start to get morose, which makes nobody horny. <laughs> right. And then the, no woman's ever said, let me just slip out of these panties while you talk about your tax problems. You know, <laughs> no woman. That just you know, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. But that's why at tequila, you know, people want to dance and party and, and screw. So, you know, who, and who doesn't like that? Now, would you consider yourself a mama's boy? Yeah, absolutely a mama's boy. Totally a mama's yeah. boy. People wouldn't know that about you, but I know that's a loaded question. I know right. that's true. Yeah, no, uh, mom's doing great. She lives down in Cocoa, Florida now. And, you know, she's 84 years old, and she still likes to get hammered and gamble. So I don't know where I come from. Your mother is a trip. I got to tell you, your mother is smart, sharp as a tack, and a lot of fun to be yeah. around. Yeah, she I is. mean, I've been around her quite a bit. Yeah. And I think she likes me. Oh, she loves you. Cause, well, because you big girl her whenever she comes to town. Yeah. You know, you, you, she's got unlimited access to the Dr. Phil Mansion, the show. The, uh, yeah, but that. she's easy to be nice to. No, I mean, no, she's no, nice. No, my mom's now, great. You have to tell this story, and I'm reminiscing stories that I know, but this is the only woman I've ever known that had a house guest that talked too much, and she put her to sleep. Now, <sighs> you've got to tell that I'll, story. You don't I, have to fill in the names. All right. Well, we'd taken who we call the mothers to Catalina Island. Uh, there was my mother and a uh, significant other's, other's mother. mother. And my mother liked to drink, and uh, the other woman liked to jabber. And I mean, would jabber and jabber and jabber and jabber. Well, we we went to bed, and they stayed up. And the next morning, we wake up, and the other mother, uh, who I love to death uh, to this day, uh she was still asleep, and this woman woke up at crack of dawn every day and started making migas and stuff, and we wake up at 10, and she's still asleep. And I'm like, well, I guess it's the salt air. We're in Catalina, you know, and and she's uh, the salt air is doing her good. 11 o'clock runs around. We wanted it. She's sleeping like a baby. Just sleeping, snoring, and uh, 12 o'clock runs by, and she's still asleep, and I start looking at my mother, I'm like, Mother, what'd you do? She goes, I put an ambient in her sandwich. I'm like, you did what? Well, she wouldn't hush, and I didn't think she ever was going to hush either. And uh, she said, let's have a sandwich, and she went to the potty, and, well, I just put an ambient right there in her sandwich. And I'm like, you can't use your prescription drugs to knock other people out, Mom. Well, I didn't really know how long she was going to be asleep, but I sure needed for her to hush and... And well, she did hush, you know. She, yeah, she sure did. It was nice too. Did she crush it up, or what did she do? Uh, yeah, she. That's what she said. She said she broke it under a glass and sprinkled it on her sandwich, just to see if she could get her to take a little. This woman's little, eighty. Yeah, and right. She's spiking she, a woman's sandwich. I, I never have gotten over that. I know. I know. Boy, Mother hates she, that story, but she knows uh, it's true. It so. sure makes me careful what I eat around her. I can yeah. tell you that. I either keep my mouth shut from talking or eating, either one. She's dangerous. Yes, yeah, she is dangerous. Dangerous. Wow. Does it bother her that you drink and smoke dope? No. Doesn't bother her in the least. My drinking uh, is is whatever it is. You know, the marijuana is prescribed to me by a physician for a reason uh, because it helps me. 
You know, it, it helps me not do other things. It help you know, it, it really balances me out. And, uh, and so, you know, there's just a, there, there is a big, big, big medical use for marijuana. I know you've always argued this point with me, but. Well, it helps you with anxiety, right? With anxiety. And what makes you the, anxious if you start running out of marijuana? Right. <laughs> right, right, right. That's but your it's logic. it's true. I mean, I know that you always like that punchline. Well, no, it's true. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's true. I, I get bummed when I run out of weed. And uh, but and there's a reason for that. So, uh, you know, I don't like to take Valium, and I don't, you know, I don't like to take Xan. I don't like to take pills. I don't like pills. I don't like uppers or downers. Uh, uh, so the, the marijuana... Uh, and also low doses of uh, psilocybin, uh, which is also an amazing, amazing treatment for depression. I don't know what you've heard about psilocybin as far as a treatment for depression. Have you heard much about Take that? Take your word for it. it. You don't even have to. You know, you can read about it. It's uh, They're given, and they're not even low doses. They're high doses. We get these people tripping balls on mushrooms under the, in, in the right environment and it resets them and, and it's going to be a big thing coming up you've got a medical marijuana card but you got arrested in florida with a medical marijuana card yeah did you show them the card oh yeah they didn't care well it wasn't issued in uh florida and they don't give a about medical marijuana I, I mean i've been partying in florida for years i didn't even know they had laws <laughs> it didn't look to me like everybody run a muck down there and yeah. And I'll run a muck with you. I'll run the f out of a muck with you. <laughs> and uh, the, these two pilots that I fired called. Uh, there's a if you have you know if you if you have a software called FlyAware, you can fly follow any plane anywhere it goes. Oh yeah. And so they'd fly follow my plane around, and before I'd land, they'd call the police and tell them it was a drug plane. So I'm on the plane by myself. I'm, I've got two shows in Fort Pierce, Florida, and uh, we land. And I'm looking out the window, and there is a SWAT team out there with dogs and, I mean, everything. And I'm like, well, I wonder what's going on. Well, it was me that was going on. So they get me off the plane, and they tell me what's happened. Well, I I know exactly what happened. I know these two heads uh, have called the police and told them that this was a plane. Now, I had, they, they searched the plane and determined that it's not a drug plane. Right. And the cops that were there knew that, you know, they knew me, they were fans. And, uh, and, uh, and so the dogs came off the plane and they go, now the dog needs to sniff that bag. And I'm like, ruh -ruh. <laughs> and, uh, so I had seven eighths of a gram, seven eighths of a gram, not a gram of marijuana, which I consider to be out of pot that when I have seven eighths of a gram, I'm You're looking out. for wheat. And, uh, the this uh whoever was the sheriff or whatever the head dude at the station says bring him in arrest him for it and uh so they handcuffed me and put me in the back of this cop car and and they're like apologizing I'm like mr white you're gonna hate us but we have to do this because this guy said we had to do it so they take me to jail and so i had i used to get five thousand a night in cash every night and uh so i'd been on the road for a little while so i had thirty-five thousand dollars in this bag that i carry on me that had the seven eighths of a gram so they're like going we need to we need to count this money and i'm like all right 
well, this guy, this stupid idiot, he's going, one Mississippi, <laughs> two oh, Mississippi. No. And I'm like, no, you can't do it that way. Just count it off. Count off 100 of them. That's $10,000. another. I'm teaching this how to count. I'm teaching him how to count money. He doesn't know how to count money. And so, meanwhile, cut to the venue. There's a sold-out venue. I had a show that night and the night after. Uh, I think it was 1,700 people. And they're just keeping him updated. They're like, well, they just moved him to county jail, but he's going to be, yeah! Not one person left. That show started two hours late. You're kidding. Not one person left. The ridiculous of it. Literally, they drove by three meth labs and a dead hooker just to get to that seven-eighths of a gram of marijuana. And, and it was so ludicrous that it spiked everything. It spiked ticket sales, shirt sales, book sales, everything spiked because it was such a ridiculous waste of manpower. Well, they were waiting for you outside the jail. Some of your fans were waiting for you, right? With a big sign that said, free tater. <laughs> and, uh, free tater. And, and, and I was in such a big hurry, I should have stopped and taken a picture of it. And I didn't, and I really regret that. And, yeah, that uh, would be a great picture. Right. That would have been the T-shirt instead yeah. of the mugshot, which wasn't yeah. very good. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very good. No, but um, next time I came to that town, I sold out uh, five shows. And uh, I mean, it, it, and the, the cop that said bring him in, in the newspaper, said he may not have had very much, you know, very many drugs with him, but how do we know how much he did have? Well, how do we know I didn't murder 50 people? <laughs> what the f kind of statement is that? I had what I had, dude. It was nothing. I, before that, I had a little more than nothing. <laughs> so hey, it was, They're great PR agents, right? It, as it turns out. They spiked it. As it turns out. When you're not doing a show, you're not a scheduled date, you go to comedy clubs, right? Like here in L.A., you'll go down to the comedy club or something? I'll do three sets a night. When really? I'm in town, I'll do the the improv Laugh Factory Comedy Store, and sometimes I'll do three sets at the Comedy Store. So sometimes it's five sets a night. Why do you do it, and what is it you're working on, and what drives you to do that? Well, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's where I get a chance to interact with my peers, and uh, and, and I like being a part of the the comedy community wherever I'm at. You know, uh, so I, I spend you know quite a bit of time you know down at the store. That's really my hang is the store more than the other the mm -hmm. two and and uh it just gives me a chance to be a comedian you know if you want to be a comedian all you got to do is go be a comedian but you got to go do that you yeah. know you got to go be a comedian and so i go down there and, and just hang out and be part of the community you know do you work on new material there? that's where i work on new material. that's where you try break in yeah not that i won't try something in a big room i will but that's where i do the you know the, the yeah. grunt of the of the work, but also the comedy store, the lineup is so good that you better be on your A game or you'll go up there and eat it, you know, cause yeah. you're going to be following Joe Rogan and you're going to be following Bill Burr and you're going to be following, uh, Sarah Silverman and you know, all these amazing comedians are there because we all got to do the same thing. You know, we need those rooms, yeah. which is why I still have a place here is so I can go down there. I'm, a, you know, I'm about to spend six months you know, rewriting this show. And, and so I'll need that. I'll need those stages to do it. I just got to ask you, you know, I always said it's lonely at the top and you're doing big venues, big business, big intensity. Do you miss 
any of those $500 a night club era that you went through? Well, they pay me $35 here. Yeah. So, you know, I, I miss the big money. Yeah. I yeah. Do. Uh, you know, I, I still do comedy clubs. You know, when I'm in Austin, I'll do the open mic night or create something somewhere else because I still need the stage time. I, I've got to stay on stage all the time. It's like being a horn player. You want to be one of the top horn players in the country, you better blow that thing every day uh, because, the, you know, you'll start to lose your chops, you know. So if I want to stay really, really sharp on stage, uh, you know, I do a lot of sets. You know, I still do 110 cities a year. Uh, in big venues, and then another, you know, 10 or 12 sets a week, you know, when I'm not working. You say you need to be on stage all the time. Some of that's to keep sharp, but do you have a need to be on stage? I could no more give it up than I could give up any other vice that I have. Really? Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's like you quit in the Dr. Phil show. You could have done it a few years ago, but you didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, the energy transfer that goes between somebody that's in front of 3,000 people uh, to you, just that energy that you get from that attention is is measurable mm -hmm. and it's addictive. You know, that's why some people stick around too long, you know, yeah. and I worry about that too. You know, I don't, I don't want to stick around until I'm irrelevant and uh, the, 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 the fans will let me know. Right now, my fan base is within 15 years of my age, you know, give or take and, uh, and quite frankly, they're dying like flies. And uh, so I need to build it up on the other end with some younger uh, viewers. And I think that's what Netflix will do for me. Uh, but, you know, right now I'm 61. My health is good. Uh, I have no intention of stopping, uh, you know, until something stops me. Uh, I, I won't quit doing it. I, I, don't, I don't imagine. If you weren't doing this, what would you do? I'd be a regional marijuana distributor in the state of Texas where it's profitable. And so, yeah. I don't know. You know, I've done it for so long. I mean, over half my life, you know, I've done stand-up comedy. So uh, I can no, I no more think about what I might do or what I might have done. I guarantee it would have paid less, whatever it was. You know, would not have. I, I always kind of knew that I did have a job with no top end to it. It was one of those jobs that you could, probably won't, but you could make all the money that you ever dreamed of, yeah. you know? So I knew, I always knew that there wasn't a top end to it. Cause I saw what happened to Jeff. And, uh, when he moved into a house that looked like a college, uh, you know, and I, I remember one time we were, he was building his house, but he'd always, he built his brother's house first, right next door, big ass house, big Colorado looking kind of a craftsman thing, gorgeous home. And, uh, and so, Larry, uh, the cable guy, Dan Whitney and I were looking at his house that he was building. And, uh, and I told him, I said, this is as unobtainable as the moon. And, uh, Dan Whitney goes, no, it ain't. We're on a blue collar comedy tour. Hell, this is the big thing in the world. You and I could be in houses twice this big in six, months, you know? And again, you know, I was wrong and he was right. So it wasn't as unobtainable as the moon. It was just improbable. And it happened anyway. Are you happy? I'm, you know, I'm happy. I, I love my life. You know, I, I have a couple of beautiful homes. Uh, you know, as far as the women in my life goes, it's never gone all that great. But, um, 
who knows what the future has in store as far as that goes. But, you know, I love my, you know, I love my job and I love where I'm at with it. And uh, I have really, really, really good friends, uh, even though I've lost a couple, uh, you know, I've still got some really good friends. And, mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, people I can go to for, you know, really, really solid advice, you and John Paul DeJoria and mm -hmm. Jay, who I tell everything to. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because you know the, your your son's smart as he can be, and and uh, and and then you've always been protective of me. And I remember when we went uh, diving in the Cayman Islands, and I was in the water, and I wasn't as prolific a diver as you guys were. You kept your eyes on me the entire time, just making sure I didn't touch something that stung or anything. You were right in front of me, going, "I'm like." So, and then well, I wanted you, you to come back with all your appendages, <laughs> right? Because it would have looked bad on you. you know? Yeah. And, so you know, I've I've got those things, and my mom and my son is wonderful, and and uh, you know I live eight miles from him. He lives in Austin too, in a house I was able to buy him. And and uh, now his mother was a little argumentative, said, you know, I don't think you should. I don't know, should you buy him a, you know, a three hundred fifty thousand dollar house at twenty eight years old? And I'm like, well, he was there, you know, through all of it. Uh, so why don't I give him something before all these women take it all and uh, and and let let it let, let me watch him enjoy this success, you know, and 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 bump his lifestyle up a little bit, and he still works every day, so uh, and he always has too, and he never tells anybody that I'm his dad, ever. He never ever plays that card ever. Uh, when he was in high school, I went to pick him up, and uh, he was working at a GameStop or something in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I walked in there, and all these kids that he worked with freaked out. They're like, "He's your dad? You're Ron? What's what?" And and so we were driving away. I said, "You never told him I was your dad." And he goes, "Well, what do you think we do? Sit around and play Guess Who My Father Is? <laughs> no, that's not what we do, Dad. We sell video games, and yeah. uh, so it's nothing he's ever talked about much. And uh, and you know, and he he loves me. And the other day, it may have been the other day, maybe a year ago, I don't know, but he goes. He goes, uh, you know what makes you a great comedian? I had no idea he thought I was a great comedian. No idea. Really? Yeah. So what did it feel like to hear that from him? Emotional. Yeah. Even to say it. Did you tell him it meant something to you? Yeah. What'd you tell him? I told him I didn't know. I know he's really into Berbigula. You know, he's into some, you know, a few, you know, younger guys. And Berbigula is a great comic. And, and uh, but uh, he had never really said anything about about my stuff. And uh, yeah. so, uh, you know, it meant a lot. Yeah. When you talk about saying you don't have the greatest self-worth or self-esteem, what is your currency? How do you determine how you feel about you? I, well, that's a, you know... A psychologist question there, <laughs> one I wasn't exactly ready for. Um, I know I'm a good guy, and I know that I'm a good friend, and I know I'm somebody that you can count on, and I know if I say I'm going to be somewhere, I'm going to be there, and if I say I'll help you, I'll help you. And uh, and you can count on me, and I know that's one of my best qualities. Mm -hmm. um, so I haunt myself 
really more about my lack of uh, education than anything else. Really? Yeah. And although it hasn't slowed me down one single bit, uh, you know, I I kind of wish that more things were in place that I could have, you know, finished high school or, you know, something like that. Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that, you know, you just end up not knowing. Now, my mind's also not cluttered with a bunch of shit I don't care about. Yeah. And it, and it really hasn't mattered one single bit. And I would have never been an accountant anyway, but I have an accountant on my payroll that takes care of all this money and, and does all these things that I really don't know that much about. So, and then, um, you know, when I run into big uh, questions, you know, I have some really good, really, really smart friends that uh, have nothing to gain from me other than to give me solid, you know, solid advice. So, you know, I get around it, but I I, I sometimes uh, have those regrets. Why do you think we turned out to be such good friends for so long a period of time? Because we both come from nothing, and um, we're basically from within 100 miles, you know, of each other born in the exact same region but i know that you also lived in you know cars and had nothing and and uh and we're faced with uh all the same uh even more dilemmas than me you know because i did have a fairly stable home although my parents divorced but you know it was fairly stable until i was 17 you know and yours wasn't but that and that you know we're off to, other than the fact that you don't drink or smoke we <laughs> you know you're really right down my alley as far as friends goes you know you're just one of those guys that can crack me up and i feel comfortable around to you know comfortable enough to do this you know yeah well you know i, I would have answered it exactly the same way because people would look and see the differences but the similarities are amazing in terms of experiences i mean we both grew up pretty meager beginnings. We both grew up in the same part of the country. We both persevered Big against time. the odds. Right. We beat the odds. Beat them to death. The fact that you and I are sitting here in Hollywood, California at Paramount Studios. Right. With Dr. Phil written on every <laughs> wall on the place. Yeah, yeah it is around. And I have a places. temporary billboard, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll be going away a little quicker than your uh, wall signs will. I mean, the fact that we're fortunate enough to have the lifestyles that we have and do the things that we do. If somebody had told me this sitting back in Yukon, Oklahoma, or Mundy, Texas, or whatever, I thought, no, 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 not not me. That's for other people. That's not for me. Right. We certainly have that in common. Yeah, we do. And both of us have sons that we want to do well, and they've done well. Yeah. It's hard sometimes. It's kind of like I have a friend, I ask him sometimes, how's your marriage? He says, great, subject to immediate collapse. Right. And people used to say, how are your boys doing? You know, when they were in like junior high and high school, and I always thought, great, when I left this morning. Right. You you have no idea when you get home what's going to be like. But, you know, to get them through, Marshall being 28 and Jay and Jordan being grown up, Having gotten them through, nobody killed in a car wreck, nobody having, you know, huge drug problems, alcohol problems, disastrous decisions in their lives. You know, that's pretty fortunate that yeah, we've come through that way. It is. But that's why I was asking you, if you ever take time to sit back and say, I appreciate this. And you say, it must not be that big a deal if you've done it. Right. That just 
bum fuzzles me. I know. Well, you know, I got in last night and I, I flew here on my plane and went to my multi-gillion dollar house in Beverly Hills and walked out on the deck overlooking from downtown to the ocean. And sometimes I'm able to pat myself on the back and go, this is your house. Well, and, I've uh, been on that deck. I've yeah. looked at that view. That's like you woke up in a movie. I, yeah, I know. I know it is. And sometimes I'm able to pat myself on the back and go, well, you, you, you know, it's amazing what you've done. I mean, do you know how many shows you've done to stand on that deck? I mean, do you realize how many jokes you've told, how many nights you've been on stage till 11, 11.30, gotten on a bus, driven all night, gotten up? I still do it. In order to stand on that deck? Right. I mean, nobody gave you No. No, they no, they didn't. I mean, I I I did earn it, and I did the work, and uh, it never felt like work either, you know. So it was what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, and and uh, you know, I always I've always been nervous that it would stop, right? So that's why I've always worked so hard. That's why I used to do 145 cities a year. That's four yeah. to five cities a week, every week. Yeah. Until I realized I was killing everybody, including myself. And it wasn't going to, you know, it wasn't going to end. And I was already wealthy. And so I dialed it back to 110. Yeah. And uh, which yeah, all slacked still, right off. Still sounds like a lot of cities to a lot of people. Uh, but it's still vibrant. And I still don't take for granted what I have. You know, I still understand that I need to, to you know, my fans deserve for me to do the work. Uh, to deliver that quality of show that keeps them coming back, so I've always done that. You never mail it in. No, I don't. I don't dial it in. I really no, don't. I mean, when you step out there, they get a hundred percent of what you have to give. Because I've seen you time and time again, and sometimes you feel good, sometimes you don't feel good. But I mean, when you step onto that stage, they're going to get a hundred percent of what you got to give. Yeah, I'm going to go beat them in the face. Yeah, and uh, so and that's just too much fun. Yeah. And I also, when I, or before I walk on stage, you know, I don't drink before I go to the show. Uh, and uh, uh, so I'll have my first drink of the day right before the show starts. I'll turn on some really loud Almond Brothers. Uh, and I know what's going to happen, right? Because they're my fans. They paid to see me. Uh, I have a show they've never seen. You don't have to win them over. They came to see you. They came to see me, and I'm just going to go beat them in the face. And they're sitting there with their faces out waiting yeah. for me to beat that face. And so I know what's going to happen. I mean, I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be a fun experience for them, and I know it's going to be exhilarating for me. And it's what I live for. And at the end of the night, you're exactly right. I get on a get on my tour bus uh and uh with uh usually with some really good friends of mine that are either my opening act or doing my vip stuff or driving the bus or my road manager and uh and we head to the next city and then we usually wake up at a golf course and i just crawl off the bus it was like i was fedexed you know <laughs> it yeah. takes no effort at all to travel on a bus that's the best thing in the world and i love the bus you know because there's no airports no hotels i stay on the bus they all have rooms when we go somewhere, but as soon as we get to town, they all get off of it. But uh, but that's where I stay, and that's my home. And it's stocked with all my stuff, so I don't have to, you know, lug luggage around or golf clubs or anything. That bus is completely stocked with everything I need. 
And uh, so it's just a, a way station that I, you know, I, I like seeing it coming because I know that it's got everything I need on it. Yeah. My, and my friends. And it's like your man cave some, on wheels. It's a man cave on wheels is exactly yeah. what it is. Any regrets when you look back? Not one single regret. I, I don't think, uh, I can't think of anything that I could have done different or would have done different. It was all just a, a series of events that got me where I am today. And I pedaled the bike as hard as I could pedal the bike. And and uh, this is where it got me. So I had no idea that it would ever happen. Never sat around thinking about it. Uh, but you know, when, when people ask me for advice, I, I tell them, keep pedaling the bike. Whatever yeah. bike you're on, just keep pedaling it. See where it goes. If it ended tomorrow, was it worth the ride? Absolutely. Every minute of it. It's been exhilarating, Doc. Exhilarating. Uh, the, the highs from the live performances uh, outweigh the lows of of uh, of divorce or, you know, or, or whatever I've been through. And, and uh, you know, I... I, uh, but not one single regret. I, I can't think of anything I could have done, done different that would have gotten me further. That's for sure. So if you knew then what you know now, you would have still taken this trip. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, because the crapshoot was so big that, uh, yeah, and, that's and, true. And, uh, you, you really have to be, when people say I'm thinking about starting doing stand up. And I'm like, well, you better want to do it for fun, which yeah. I did. Yeah, I did it because I thought it was fun, and uh, so you know, all it, it all over a period of time, it all worked out to this. But what are the odds of that happening? You know, so, uh, but, but I know I can't think of one thing I would have done that I could have done different that it would have made it. Well, it's lightning in a bottle, right? And what's the chance of getting lightning in a bottle twice? Right, none. If you were starting this over. What are the chances that this would have happened? I'd look at happened? it, I'd be exhausted. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was I was in my twenties when I started this, late twenties and uh and now I'm sixty one, so you know, it uh it, 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 I can't imagine that it could have worked out any better any other way as far as my career goes and uh, or or as far as my relationship with my son or my mother and, and my friends, you know, and that's that's what matters to me. Your road manager for so long was Steve. Yeah. And I know you still miss him. And I got to know him well. In fact, I knew him right up till the end. I'd been to see him and. Right. You came to the hospital and spent some time with him. Yeah. And all. Do you think he had any regrets? We met when we were six years old. When we were six years old, our houses were right next to each other. My bedroom was right across from his bedroom. So we stayed up till all hours of the morning talking out the window. Um, for the last 10 years of his life or 11 years of his life, he was my road manager. So we spent, and then and we were literally, that's when we were doing 145 cities. We were together every day. He did everything for me. Uh, he had no ulterior motive other than to make my life better and I had no ulterior motive than to make his life better so we got to play some badass golf courses uh, 
and uh and see things and tour and and become friends that were completely inseparable uh and i lost him young lost him young you know i don't know if i ever told you in detail but i did go see him some toward the end and you know when that comes back it comes back with a vengeance for people that don't know he had a very aggressive form of cancer and you know it can go into remission when it comes back it comes back with a vengeance it's a juggernaut there's no stopping it and he knew that yeah he knew it before he started losing his faculties about it his mother and, died of the same thing brain yeah. cancer you know i asked him kind of the same question if he had any regrets or if he had done anything different and he said the last 10 years or so of my life, he said, Ron has taken me on the ride of a lifetime. He said, who gets to do this? Who gets to do this? He said, this is going to end soon. I know it. If I had known 10 years ago this was going to end now, I wouldn't have changed a day of what we've done. That's a pretty good testament. Yeah. That's a pretty good testament. Yeah, he was he was amazing. So when you say you're a good friend, that's a pretty good test for a guy that's on his deathbed saying, I spent the last 10 years with Ron White, and if I'd have known 10 years ago it was my last 10 years, I would have spent every day of it with him. Yeah, you know, and he's something that, you know, I can't replace, you know, Steve. Jay actually flew out for the funeral, and, you know, because he knew I was in, you know, a wreck and and he knew that he could make it better by coming out and just taking over yeah and uh setting the whole thing up i didn't know he was coming you know i'm in my office in tears jay shows up and just takes it all over you know takes it all off my shoulders which is a you know Something you just don't expect, you know, um, for people to care that much about you, that they would fly across the country and, and be there to, to lean on, you know, when you need it the most. Well, proud to say about Jay, he's a lot of things, but fair weather friend is not and one the, of them. <laughs> no, no, he's not a fair weather friend. Uh, when I have the clouds of brewing, he's right there giving me advice. Yeah. Here's what we should do, Ron. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's honest and smart. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm lucky, lucky to have him and you uh, as genuinely true buds. Well, you need to know we feel exactly the same way. I'm a pretty good judge of horse flesh. So when you start saying, eh, you know, I'm not that much i don't have that great of self-esteem that's kind of an insult to me because i'm a pretty good judge of horse flesh yeah and i hold you in very high esteem well, thank you doc i hold you in high esteem thank you for doing this thank you if you would like to watch the video of this entire interview please go to dr phil's youtube channel and subscribe it's free and you will find this interview and a whole lot more